0: Welcome to another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein. Accomplished, creative, committed, passionate, just some of the adjectives that describe Nancy Schwartzman. And here's how I can back up that statement Nancy is a director, producer, and media strategist, globally recognized human rights advocate, and technologist. Briefly, Nancy uses storytelling and technology to create safer communities for women and girls. And to that end, her debut documentary, Roll Red Roll, chronicles the sexual assault of a teenage girl by members of a revered high school football team and the small, tight-knit community of Steubenville, Ohio. The film goes behind the scenes to expose the boys-will-be-boys culture. Roll Red Roll had its premiere at Tribeca and has played at more than 30 festivals around the world. It's won numerous awards, including the Adrian Shelley Foundation's Excellence in Filmmaking Award. Nancy's first film, The Line, a short documentary examining consent, was used by the White House for its campaign about sexuality. Her follow-up short, XOXO SMS, which explores a relationship between two teenagers, aired on the PBS series POV as well as the BBC. As for technology, Nancy created the White House award-winning app, Circle of Six, which is aimed at reducing sexual violence among America's young people. Its reach extends overseas. More than 350,000 people in 36 countries have accessed it. Nancy Schwartzman, welcome, and thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. When you hear something like this, do you get overwhelmed, bowled over, can't believe it?
1: Yeah, no, it's it's nice to hear your bio read for sure. <laughs> Be like, oh right, okay, let me, I can focus on that stuff. Yeah, no, it's exciting. I feel in some ways like I'm always kind of a beginner. There's so there's a lot of firsts mm-hmm. on on my resume. You know, I I wasn't a technologist. I made an app. This is my first feature film. Um, it's my first investigative documentary. You know, so I kind of look at my work as like a series of firsts. Mm-hmm. So it's exciting to to be a beginner, and then it's exciting to make the thing and put it out in the world. So how did you become that beginner? What did you think you wanted to be when you grew up? Uh-huh. Well, initially when I when I was younger, I wanted to be a doctor, like mm-hmm. my dad, because I'm very nosy. I like to ask questions. I have strong opinions. Um, and I like to be right. That's what I thought <laughs> being. That's how my dad is, right? So that's what I thought being a doctor was. Um, and I actually was pretty good at listening to people and identifying, oh, they have this and this and this. Dad, maybe they have this. You thought you'd go into practice with your father? <laughs> well, definitely not, um, after I almost bombed out of, you know, our organic chemistry at Columbia University. Um, so I got to college thinking I'm going to be a doctor, like five, 500 out of the incoming 800 mm-hmm. students at Columbia. They're all like, we don't know what to do. We'll be doctors. Right. And then so they make that first year so hard. But then I realized actually my first year I had this brilliant um, art history professor who really was teaching us about uh, media literacy and looking at art as a a portal into looking at the past uh, behaviors, politics, culture, gender, all of it. Like this, what is this painting? This painting has so many symbols Mm. and codes in it. Mm -hmm. This was the year it was painted. This was the reality for the painter. This was the painter's relationship with his patrons, um, his or her patrons, you know. So she really taught us how to decode not just painting over time, but also it was during Clinton's presidency. Um, look at the photo that this newspaper chose to run of Clinton today after his gaffe yesterday. So it's calculated. Yeah. And just the curation of images, mm-hmm. how we're fed them, who who puts out the stories. I just was completely hooked after that. I thought art history and the poor, art has always been magic to me. So it's this magical world that I can learn the language and symbols of. So the degree at At Columbia was really amazing because it was very open and broad. You could study pretty much anything Mm -hmm. and get an art history degree. So obviously the haters of art history are like, exactly, it's completely useless. (laughs) I was like, are you kidding? I got to become fluent in French, study cinema, study ancient religion. And then I ended up being really fascinated by street photography in New York City, documentary mm. photography. But that's so slow and meticulous. Like a, like a photographer will work for a decade on a body of work and finish with 20 photos. And I'm like, oh, God, I'll die. Yeah, that, like if I to, that won't work for oh, me. Oh, no. If uh-huh. I have to be alone in a dark room and not, not get to show anyone my work and have a conversation about it, what makes that perfect photograph is so... Um, I just don't think the rest of us really get it. Like, we look at color. I and mean, we're so bombarded with imagery that, yes, we do understand beautiful composition or color. But the way in which documentary photography works, I think, there's it's almost so rarefied. Like, how you take that perfect shot or winnow down 300 pictures to get that one photo. There's so few people that can help you get there, mm-hmm. I feel like. Mm-hmm. Um, also, when I was taking photos in New York City as a senior in college in a year or two after, I wanted to hear from my... People I was Your photographing. Your subjects? Absolutely. <laughs> like their stories, you know, you'd have a conversation and then you take the pictures. And for me, the conversation was more interesting in a way than the photo or it just they had to go together. Mm-hmm. Like I can't just have this image. It's never going to speak its fullest. Gotcha. Um, so that's when I thought, you know, I'll make a movie. <laughs> um, and I bought a camera. It was right when um, the fancy prosumer cameras were becoming smaller and more for consumers. So it was this really good moment of, um, it was digital, but not, it was pre-internet basically, but regular people being able to use pretty decent cameras that were handheld and So that was it. I had no idea what I was getting into. Yeah, I
0: hear that a lot from the women I (laughs) interview, and it really kind of blows my mind. This, I'm going to do what I'm going to do, and even though I may not have studied film at college or whatever, Mm -hmm. it doesn't matter. And clearly that's paid off for you. But when you were behind the lens, were you still in school? No. Mm -mm. And so did you assume you were going to make a living doing this?
1: No, not at all. I think I really had no idea what I was doing, and it was just a beautiful way to explore. Um, I guess what I loved about it, and I wasn't even really thinking about making a living, frankly, but what I loved about it was when I had a camera in my hand, I was able to ask people anything I wanted to ask them. And they would answer. You don't have the right to do that as a nosy person, just staring at someone or asking them questions. But when you have a camera, and that's an agreement. It's like this tacit agreement. And
0: more street cred, in a sense.
1: Yeah, I guess so. And so I just followed people everywhere, asked tons of questions, was you know, let into their lives all because I had a camera. I had no training, and so I was always secretly kind of amazed that people. I'm still amazed that people let you into their lives. Well, obviously, you, you
0: didn't. They didn't feel threatened by you. I guess not. that has to add to that. Did you see the photographs of somebody like Cindy Sherman?
1: I I think the women who really inspired me as photographers were Francesca Woodman, uh, Cindy Sherman, Nan Golden. Um, Helen Levitt, mm-hmm. Sebastián Salgado, but Nan Golden, definitely. I don't know if you know her work. It's very, you know, autobiographical. Right. Grungy New York mm-hmm. and queer and a lot of despair and addiction. You know, so I there's this piece of me that was like, oh, that's what it means to be an artist.
0: And that's Cindy Sherman, too.
1: Yeah. Her stuff... Um, so brilliant those film stills were really just blew me away and then later her i appreciated how artful and theatrical her later stuff was Mm -hmm. but that wasn't really my world um and i don't know if you know francesca woodman but she she killed herself at a really young age she was brilliant did these beautiful black and white self-portraits oh uh so i felt also as a young person i didn't really feel entitled to explore myself that felt self-indulgent which i I question now, you know, it's like, wow, we're so hard on women artists, right? Like if you explore the train of your own life,
0: was it under the rubric of I'm not worthy?
1: It's indulgent. Okay. I think I think All the right. way we treat artists mm-hmm. is treating treating any kind of exploration as indulgent, or that's maybe my own internal okay. judge. Okay. So, unless you're out changing the world, you better prove there's a good reason you're an artist.
0: So, how did this morph into a career?
1: So then I started making this film. I took a year off. I I saved up money. I worked as a temp at British Telecom, and I made the best money. (laughs) I'm like, oh, my God, nine to five. I'm making so much money, an hour. I just have to keep spreadsheets organized. So I think the spreadsheets actually helped me be a film producer because you can't make a movie without spreadsheets. Um, And I saved up a bunch of money, and I moved to Jerusalem, actually. Oh. And that's where I shot some of my first film. So I had like, you know... $5,000 $5,000 in that. Why is real? I had met some people in the film community. They had a really strong, really fascinating Oh, that's interesting. I didn't know that. Absolutely. Uh-huh. Absolutely. Absolutely. And have... what year is this? These this in was early in... 2000s? Yeah. All mm-hmm. right. So they have a really strong uh, documentary community there and film community. So I moved there with the thought when I run out of money, I'll try to get a job. Okay. Um, and I ended up filming. Oh, my God. It's a fascinating place to film. I could walk around anywhere, ask all these questions. I started exploring sexuality because there were a lot of amazing American kids who had left the US, left this very confusing, faux, sexually liberated, but pretty hyper conservative US culture. To go to Israel to feel safe and welcomed? Well, to like be reborn, to find <sighs> That's religion. Really interesting word. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, there were these, there was one gal that I followed who had been this kind of party gal, like in Oakland and very free, who, moved to Jerusalem to become religious and almost be virginized again. Huh. And I met some Christian kids who did that too, and it was just like what are we what are we all running away from and what do you think you're here to achieve? So that was kind of what I was able to explore there. And then um I of course had like a full-time job and two other side gigs um for several years. But when when that first film came out The Line Um, I was able to create a grassroots campaign to go with the film using social media and students. And I got invited to colleges all over the country.
0: But where did the sexuality come from? What made you decide to make a documentary that examined consent?
1: You know, I didn't want to admit it, I think, but it was going to be sort of my own.
0: So so it's personal.
1: It's personal. It became very personal in the film. It's Mm -hmm. very personal. But at the beginning, I thought, I'm exploring other people's rejection or confusion of American youth culture and sexuality. I'm not like them, but I'm just gonna closely observe them. You know now, what I was mean? this
0: also in Israel or you came home? That to... was in Israel. All right, so you're gonna you're right, mm-hmm. you're the observer and, yeah, and, and a
1: chronicler. Right. So the line examines sexual consent and I'm in it and it explores my own personal experience of being sexually assaulted while I was there. So, you know, that was a really kind of long, complicated decision to say, well, I've shot all this footage, now I've been assaulted I went back to New York City and was like, you know what? I'm just gonna kind of put that year away and just. Did you have any support system on. when that happened? Um, I had some good friends there. It's funny. It's like I was so shocked, um, and you I, don't know what to do with it. They, do you, you don't know what to do. Mm, and the yeah. place that I worked, you know, you'd close the bathroom door, and there'd be a sticker that was saying, "If you need anything, like here," but it was in Hebrew and Arabic. I'm like I don't know what that sticker says. I don't. Did you know, know what, what to you're do. a soldier? Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. I did. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So then, you know, I had the perspective of being at home. And then I did a lot of research about rape and recovery and trauma and healing. Um, and I decided actually that I would go back to Israel and interview the man who assaulted me. Get out. Yeah. Because I had done this this huge sort of cultural exploration of why rape happens and how do we, You know, it's very, it was a little theoretical, right? And then I was like, actually, the only person who can truly answer the question I have is is him. And how much
0: time had passed? Three years. And you went back mm-hmm. and you found him mm-hmm. and you filmed him? Mm-hmm.
1: Um, it was really... Did he own up to this? No. Um, it was really empowering to have the camera with me.
0: This blows my mind. Really? Yeah. Wow.
1: That's when I started to understand how powerful it is to be able to tell your own story and how powerful the camera is as a witness. Um, I felt so safe with the camera. I felt calmed by the camera like it was it was like this tool that helped serve something bigger so yeah i had his body language on camera so that was it it's like someone can say words and then you can actually take in their whole being and their whole person for lack
0: of a better word did that experience did that film provide you with satisfaction
1: You know, some people ask, oh, was that healing for you? I mean, you've talked to so many filmmakers, you know filmmaking is brutal. (laughs) Um, Therapy is great, and massages are great. Um, You know, I think the investigation piece of really getting to dig into rape culture, really understanding the context that I was raised in, getting to face him face-to-face and have a conversation with him, all that stuff was satisfying is an interesting word. I mean, it definitely, like helped me understand and for me asking questions and digging in and trying to understand gives me more um certainly wouldn't be empathy it's not empathy it is sort it's just a deeper understanding it gives me more wisdom right it's like it gives me the ability to then stand in front of a lot of young people and help guide yep. them and depth it's just yeah that. it's like yeah. it's mm-hmm. understanding so then yeah you know on a deeper level maybe that's compassion but it, it's sort of like a deeper understanding perspective and some wisdom
0: well based on what you've done and we'll get to this big film in just a minute I would have to think that the line is a first and still remains a first who would do this And especially today in the Me Too movement Mm -hmm. also, I'm sort of flabbergasted that he agreed to be in the film in spite of the fact that he did so because, um, no, I didn't, you know, and I'm going to defend myself. Mm -hmm. But that you had the inner strength to do that. And obviously the need as well.
1: It was definitely a need. It was definitely a need. Um, But I had done a lot of research about transformational justice and restorative justice, where there's a victim-offender kind of mediation. And actually it's common that a lot of victims or survivors, what they, what they really want is an opportunity to have their offender basically admit that they did something wrong. Like the desire to meet someone face to face is actually common. Like initially I thought I was crazy and obviously my mom was so worried and people thought it was nuts. But I talked to some experts who have done truth and reconciliation work because he became this huge, powerful, scary thing in my memory and by sitting across from him. I was able to regain. Got the power back. Yeah. Just be like, oh, okay, you're like a human being. Mm -hmm. I can do this. Right. But mm -hmm. I
0: still feel, not that I've done a survey, that those films, that personal, that documentary is not common.
1: No, not at all. And uh, it came out 10 years ago. If wow. you can believe it. Yeah. Wow. And I had um, some amazing support from the Fledgling Fund. They really saw the value of the campaign that we did, but no one would touch it. It was like radioactive until it was done. And then it was all around the world, you know, really successful with young people. But people were, oh, you can't make a film because it's about your experience. Oh, no one's going to see what happened to you as sexual assault. You know, the conversation was so nascent at the time. Huh. That and so under the rug Mm -hmm. under the radar Mm -hmm. and we were so steeped in victim blaming Mm -hmm. yeah that Mm -hmm. um yeah it was a very early conversation so it's awesome to see who was who was keen to it at the time Mm -hmm. and and see how the conversations evolved over right so that clearly put you on the path in terms of your human
0: rights activism Mm -hmm. that was the what door opening Mm -hmm. and the start so take us on this journey after the line. This is a topic that was so important to you that you weren't going to let go of it in some form or another.
1: You know, after the line, the campaign was so incredible. By the way, was this shown in schools? Yes, oh, in goodness. colleges, okay. but not high schools. Okay, we're in the same. We're in exactly the same pickle we were ten years ago in terms of high schools and seeing content that they need to see. Exactly, actually, because yeah. teenagers were getting that information. Anyway, they're getting all kinds of information. So why would we not give them hard-hitting, ac- exactly. accurate, mm-hmm. um, appropriate information? So, you know, for me, the experience of putting my story out there and being really public and was important. And then now I'm just in such a different place. Like, I don't want to burden survivors with that. We shouldn't have to be the ones doing it, is my theory, and why I made the next film. But um, so um, with the line, I started, you know, I was like, on social media quite a bit talking about consent and like part of this bigger conversation and then someone sent me on twitter like hey there's a competition at the white house to build a mobile app to reduce sexual violence. This is Obama years? Yes, of mm-hmm. course. We yeah, should always say yeah. that. The good right. years, it was the <laughs> Obama-Biden White House, mm-hmm. and it was uh, sparked by Biden and Lynn Rosenthal, who was his number two at the Office on Violence Against Women. And we had a chief technology officer when we had a decent office on science and tech policy in the United States. So, Those were the days. <laughs> yeah. um, so we had this amazing moment where uh, the intersection of caring about women and girls— Intersected with technology, right? And it was pretty early. So Biden and the CTO uh, at the time, Anish Chopra, put out a call saying, if there's anyone, you know, we're looking for citizens and engineers. So it was funny. I kept having to be like, and you need regular people. <laughs> To be the bridge Uh between the world and technology. So the call was, you know, make an app to reduce sexual violence with college-age kids. And my first thought was like, oh, that's cool. Like, that's not for me. I'm a filmmaker. I am this thing now. But then I realized, wow, it's the demographic that I know really well because I've been touring the country for a year and a half with the line. I've collected hundreds of stories from young people. So I have what I now know is called a data set. Mm -hmm. You know, like I have data about how young people are experiencing violence in their lives. Um, I know how to reach them. I'm good at campaign and language and visuals and stuff. So I teamed up with two incredible people, um, my dear friend who's fantastic designer, Toma Kabu, who's queer and really understood how things need to look and feel and be inclusive, and um, engineer Christine Corbett Moran. So the three of us, tiny little team, got together and built this app. Really simple, a simple tool. And um, there was also another woman on board, Deb Levine, as well. So we use the concept of a circle, um, like a circle of friends. So you set that up before you go out. Um, Ideally, if it was at a college, right, and the whole college adopted it the way Williams College did, every first year student would download Circle of Six. The RA, Residence Advisor, would teach you how to use it. It's really simple. Put in Three people that you know and love and trust. One can be your roommate. One can be the RA. Mm -hmm. Someone from home is great. But if you're new at a new school, let's make sure there are people nearby. Of course. Um, So you're doing safety planning before you go out. And let's have a conversation about what this app is. And the app was three people you know and trust in a pinch, two taps, get you three pre-programmed messages. One is come and get me. I need help with your GPS. The second is call and interrupt me. I need an interruption. The third is I need to talk. And all three are sent through Circle of Six. The other thing we have are um, national resources that we've added on the app as well. So anti-violence, healthy relationships, and sexual education. Wow. So really simple. Most (sighs) of these kids don't- But
0: powerful. Yeah. Uh So we,
1: we knew that like they're you know, I love the women's centers and all that, but like most kids are sitting on their bed on their cell phone after Mm -hmm. something happens. Exactly. Number one. Number two, most kids go to each other. Um, So how can we make sure that larger circle has good information and doesn't say the wrong thing when your friend comes to you and can show you where to go or help you in that process? And also it was really important to us not to default connect you to the police, because most kids do not want to be connected to the police. They want to A, sort out like what happened? What do I want? The second you go to the police, it's like out of your hands,
0: and it sort of becomes public. Exactly, yeah. right? So that sort of does. Yeah,
1: we wanted to respect all people's experiences around law yeah. enforcement as well. Right. So um, we found out because we did surveys with Williams. We had nine colleges adopt us as well, blanket across campus, which was really cool. A lot of the college admins thought, "Oh, security," there, you know, and it's like this is much more holistic. And most of the kids use that. I need to talk quite a bit,
0: which is is amazing. I mean it's just really fascinating. And it nice. just took off like crazy, right?
1: It did. Um we won the prize from the White House. So we when that press release went out, then it was like yeah. Wow. Wow. Really cool. And we got a lot of terrific press. And I also made sure to use media opportunities as a ways for public education in a way. Like, this is harm reduction. This is about doing what all college students are up to, trying to reduce any victim blaming Mm -hmm. around, well, why was that girl at a party on a Friday night? Right. Because everyone's at a party on a Friday night. We were like the second safety tool ever designed for this. There was a ton of copycats after us. Hmm. But a lot of the vibes of them were like danger, danger. Living your life is dangerous. And we were like, no, it instilling isn't. the fear
0: of God or just the yeah. fear into people, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. girls. About yeah, girls, right. Trying right, to right.
1: like restrict restrict our freedom. And and I wanted to make a tool that was like inherently empowering. Um, that was for everyone, that enabled not just you, the user, but your six people, men, lots mm-hmm. of men in your circle. It's right. like, what can I do to help? It's, right. it's kind of early tool for intervention and, and empowering people to, like, be more aware and be more observant and be more supportive of each other.
0: You know, on some level, as you're talking about this, as innovative as it was, it seems like such a no-brainer. Right. Let's move to mm-hmm. roll, red mm-hmm. roll. As I said in the introduction, this has actually happened. Mm-hmm. But take us on this And I'm using the term event and why you got involved.
1: Yeah. um, Again, it was another, you know, once you start doing work in the gender space. Your name gets out there. Anything happens. People are like, did you hear about this? Did you hear about that? And I remember I was on holiday just visiting my parents. And I was like, oh, I need a break. Thank God, you know, from everything. What year is this? This is December 2012. Oh, okay. So it's when the story broke in The New York Times. And my dad dropped the newspaper in front of me and said, look what's happening in Ohio. And I was like, Dad, this is happening everywhere. <laughs> you know, it's like I've been doing this work for a couple of years now and nothing about this surprises me. Um, at the time, concurrently, um, the big rape happened in India. We were in the middle of designing an app for India, wow. which we got out in three months <laughs> um, afterwards. You know, nothing about this is new. Nothing about Here this we surprises go again. me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but as I sat with it, I realized um, what, I, what I really wanted to explore in my next film was perpetrators. What is the mindset? What is the language? What is the culture that enables boys and young men to act this way? Like, who are they? Mm-hmm. When I started really reading in and learning about Steubenville, I was like, well, these kids are like the kids I went to high school with. We want to say there are good kids and bad kids. And that's just not true. You know, we're all each other and we all have the capacity. So what is it that we need to ensure that this stuff doesn't happen? What does the culture look like that enables us to go on with impunity? And for the record, the high school I went to was a very unsafe place as well. Different demographic. Where where did you live? Um, I was outside of Philadelphia. I went to public school called Harriton High Mm -hmm. School. Um, And then I went to private school for a couple years. But Mm -hmm. that was such a toxic environment. It was very unsafe for young girls as well. So when people ask, how did you get into Steubenville in the belly of the beast? And was that shocking for you? It was not shocking for me. It reminded me of my high school.
0: Except that it resonated in a different way. Like not so much enough (laughs) is enough, but this one I'm not just going to let this fall by the wayside.
1: Yeah. I mean, it takes a lot now that I've done my first feature. Now I know. <laughs> it's always those first. You just never know what, what you're getting into. But, yeah, but they um, never stopped you in the past. So, you know, move on. <laughs> just keep going. You wouldn't do it if you knew how hard it was. Um, but what was fascinating about the mill case to me was that there was all, so much of it was public. There was so much um, social media where you could really read how young men were talking about women in the town, right And like and the language and how public it was really enabled me to have a sense of their personalities and who's who and you can start piecing things together just from what's there publicly. And then I met Alex Goddard, the blogger who weeps us through the story and I remember my first phone call with her and I was like, oh man, she is a very smart, cool woman and I think she could lead us through. Then you have anonymous hacking in. Then you have an understanding that there are more rapes that happened prior. You know, there were so many layers to the story. So at any point you could say, well, why is this why is this case different or unusual? And there's a lot of reasons why it was.
0: And so you connected with her?
1: I connected with Alex. I really I remember that phone call so well and thought, wow, this woman's amazing and if she's gonna let me film her She's going to take us through the story. Uh-huh. And then the last thing that helped me say, okay, I'm going to do this. So the first was the social media. The second was Alex. The third was, I'm going to go back to town a year after the rape. So we came in late. You know, CNN had already been there. All Everyone had already been there. So there's the idea in nonfiction, like, oh, well, you missed it. You're not <laughs> there on the ground. Mm-hmm. It's over. But this film is really such a testament to long-form storytelling and really, like, investing in the town and being there. So the third piece was... um Going back to the town a year later. So I started filming exactly a year after the assault. So it was the anniversary. And I drove into town and I thought, you know, let's see if there's anything here. Let's see if anyone's talking about it.
0: Or did it just fade away?
1: Right. Are people mm-hmm. done? Let's see. Every single place I went, people were talking about it. Everywhere. It was amazing. So it's- Talking just, about it how? Just in all different ways So it well, not clearly that it, it
0: was so unfair to these boys. It was- it was everything?
1: It was just every, you know, I was overhearing at the yeah. time. You know, I was just walking through stuff like eating and being like, is that booth behind us talking about it? Oh my gosh, it's that story I mean, every single person was just, it was so in everyone's life.
0: Because how could this happen?
1: Because how could this happen, number one, but also more broadly because rape impacts, it ripples out and impacts everyone. And that's what I could see from Steubenville. And that's what I think is really important too. When we ignore these things and say it's just between two people mm-hmm. or three and what's the big deal and move on. No, it isn't. It actually, and this was an opportunity to see how it actually ripples out and everyone is affected.
0: What was your intention in making this film about the rape case involving the Steubenville, Ohio high school football team?
1: Just make it clear that there were five boys in a room with a girl and none of them helped her. So although it was, Oh, two boys got convicted. It's fine. It's fine. We're moving on. It's not the worst kind of rape. There were five young men in that room, one of them taking pictures, one of them stepping over her, all within close proximity, Mm -hmm. and none of them did anything to help her. No parent should find that acceptable behavior in their child. And I think when you don't allow for an actual conversation about what happened and really look at those details about how are we teaching our kids to treat each other because a lot of people were very invested in saying it's no big deal let's move on it's like i think we need to do better
0: i meant to ask before what's the title of roll red roll it's a
1: football chant and that's the anthem and chant of the town's team so the team were the reds well the school is big red and their slogan is roll red roll so i started talking to some business owners No one wanted to talk to me about the rape right away, obviously, because they were like, you know what? The media already came and did their worst. Why would you be any different? Yeah, this is
0: just among us.
1: Uh, us. Yeah, we don't need you. You're an outsider. Mm -hmm. Um, Why is everyone so obsessed with the rape?
0: And are you going to vilify us?
1: Exactly. And what I could see in the town, it's this beautiful old town that, like so many cities in the United States, is really down on its luck. Um, It's a Rust Belt town. Um, But I could see there was a theater that someone was rehabbing, an old, beautiful theater that someone's painstakingly trying to, you know, fix and build. And there's a little town parade happening. You know, people were really invested in this town. And I I thought that was inspiring. Um, There's like hope and grit and effort to like, try to rebuild when... They're getting no support from the state or the federal government, (laughs) Mm -hmm. right? And it's always on the shoulders of individuals. So I started talking to those folks. I said, wow, you know, you've, you've a beautiful inn here and this beautiful theater. Tell me about it. And inevitably, in all the conversations, it would get to how devastating the rape was for the whole community.
0: And that's sort of what they're known for now?
1: They're known for that. That's who they are. Also, it just crushed economic opportunity. Who wants to come in and do business and no one wants to visit? Them anymore. And, you know, that was such a different perspective and a very human one. And mm-hmm. I thought if I can relate to people about how just devastating this the story event. was mm-hmm. for everyone without having it become this divided thing. In spite um, of the fact that
0: no one believed her initially, correct? Yeah, yeah. And everybody was rallying behind the attackers.
1: Well, she's from a town across the river. Um, And her town actually really supported her. Mm -hmm. Um, It's an old rivalry between the two towns. (laughs) And, you know, she has a terrific family and terrific community who protected and supported her. And she had a river between her and the town, uh, which I think made a big difference. I bet, yeah. So, you know, I think when you have this harsh glare spotlight that Anonymous brought and all the news outlets brought, it's understandable that you would hunch up your shoulders and get really defensive. Sure. But there's a lot of rape myths in, you know, the culture over there around why these things happen Mm -hmm. and who is to blame Mm -hmm. that I wanted to, like, unpeel and unpack in the film. And was that pushing
0: a rock up a hill?
1: Yes, it was pushing a rock up a hill in a lot of ways. But, you know... I have a lot of compassion for people in the town. A lot of them reminded me of my grandfather. <laughs> mm. You know, when we think about the older generation in our lives, it's not like they're the men of that generation are the most evolved about <laughs> right. gender r- roles. Right. You know, when I showed the film to my sister, she said, oh, that guy in the shop reminds me of Pop-Pop. I'm like, he does. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not. It's, it's we have to be compassionate and try to bring people in when we're trying to shift and change things. I think what happens also and what was important about this film was to really show what happened in details.
0: How did this impact you personally based on what happened to you? You were able to separate?
1: Oh, yeah. I was definitely able to separate. I was assaulted. I was assaulted 15 years ago. Yeah. So what? Um, I think that. I felt, look, it was a hostile environment a lot of the time. Um, I had an amazing team. My producer, Stephen Lake, is incredible, an incredible cinematographer, Matt Bockelman. I had two fantastic men. With me. Mm-hmm. And I think that was very helpful, not just externally for optics, because God forbid three women roll into town <laughs> and then get rolled right out. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I was very careful about I need a white guy and Matt Bachelman's from Indiana. And I was like, you better talk about Hoosiers. And he's yeah. like, I hate sports. I listen to NPR. I'm like, don't talk D- about it. Don't NPR. share that. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I think it's hard to go in there. It's hard to, to, um, I mean, I like having a larger purpose. My larger purpose was to be there to be open mm-hmm. and to capture and witness everything that I could. And we definitely needed long walks and detox conversations, and because the
0: film is so raw.
1: It's raw, and it can be painful to be close to things that are important to you, that people that don't see eye to eye in a way that directly impacts women and gay people. right Let's say. Yeah, but in terms of I think that being a survivor uh, was really important for my filmmaking process. I think it's why Alex trusted me. I think it's why a lot of survivors in town trusted me. Mm -hmm. It's why I was able to make the film that I was able to make Mm -hmm. to really push the conversation forward around rape culture and to shift the burden off of the actual victim in the story and put it where it belongs on the behavior and the perpetrators. Um, I think it gave me a deeper understanding for sure.
0: And in terms of the victim how much does she play in this film? Not at all. Not at and all. And that was from the start. When I say not about her, mm-hmm. of
1: course it is about her, but it's not about her. It's not, it, is not, it does not center her. That was from the beginning the film was going to be about perpetrators. Mm-hmm. That was the goal. And if it wouldn't happen in Steubenville, it was like, okay, maybe I'll try to go into a prison. And I want to look at that behavior, mm-hmm. the victim, whoever she is, whether it was me, whether it was – Nothing I did has anything to do with why I was raped. Right. It's really all the answers that lie with the person who chooses to do the assaulting. How long did it take you to make the film? Uh, four years. Get out. Mm-hmm. And I had said, no, I don't want to make a feature. I don't want it to take five years. Uh, it took four years, and we've been on on the road for a year, so it's about five years. This is
0: now so a part of your DNA, isn't it? I guess yeah. so, Yeah. And what's its impact been? All these festivals that it's been, are you stunned by this? Are you overwhelmed? Or no, this is what it should be. This is the reception it should have received.
1: I'm so happy. I'm just, I'm so happy that the film works. Um, we're the season opener for POV. We're yeah, at Point film, of View on PBS. Point yeah. of View, yeah. We're, they chose us to kick off, kick off, sports pun, but um, <laughs> to kick off their season. Yeah. And and that is that is PBS saying this is an important topic for America to be looking at right now, which is huge. We're going to be on Storybill on the BBC. And then wide release. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So it's just it's really um, incredible and exciting that the world feels ready, that it's a great moment to have this conversation and see this film and that I could offer offer that work of hopefully presenting like this is what rape culture really looks like at its core and all the layers. Now, what are we going to do about it?
0: In that beautiful theater in Steubenville, Ohio, was your film shown there?
1: Um, It's not a movie theater. Sure. But we'll be in Cleveland uh, the first week of April. So I've invited folks from town, a lot of people, to come to that. Mm -hmm. And what I want to do is offer the opportunity, if you would like us to come, I feel like if people don't want us there, why would we book a screening there? You know, that seems very invasive. Okay. I want to give people the choice. If you do not want to watch this on PBS, do not turn on your television. Well,
0: that that's the option I have. Yeah, yes,
1: exactly. So I'm not going to sweep in and say, you all need to see this. No way. Mm-hmm. If y'all don't want to see it, that's fine. There's a lot of people who do want to see it, and I want to make sure they can. Mm-hmm. Pittsburgh certainly wants us to come. That's 45 minutes away. Um, Wheeling, West Virginia is 20 minutes away. They want us to come. We will certainly come. You know, so it's a little bit of a process. There's a lot of, panic in the town and a lot of jumping to conclusions about what this film is Uh before having seen it. So um, it's kind of a slow process of inviting folks. And then if people want us to do that, we can do a big event with PBS, with local um, sort of experts and advocates. Like I would love to do that, but also I would certainly not force it on the town.
0: What about talkbacks following the film?
1: Yeah, they've You've done been, oh, yeah, we've yeah. done a ton of talkbacks. Mm-hmm. We're doing panels with all of our um, uh, screenings at Film Forum. And what I always do is bring a man up there with me who works with men and boys. So that's a huge part of our impact campaign. Um, so often when you have a film like this, People say, oh, great. Oh, a film about rape. We'll invite the Women's Center. Right. And I'm, you know, I said this at my premiere tryback. I didn't make this film for women. We know this story. I'm passing the baton. This is for men. This is for men and boys. It's huge because it's the first. So obviously your plate is really full. But before we say goodbye, what's next on your list? Oh, I have so many things in my head and my heart. This rollout is very comprehensive and terrific. But um, there's a few things I'm might take a break from gender for my next project and work on something that has to do with the land and animals and some unlikely heroes. Um, Part of me just wants to be outside in beautiful places and be with people who love the land. But they're cool, and it's a little unusual. Heroes. Okay, so this is a bit of a tease. <laughs> would this be would this be a documentary? Yeah, also? it would okay. be a doc. And then there's something I'm in process of we're working on the paperwork, but um, adapting a really fascinating uh, set of stories around women's bodies, mm-hmm. and I might dip into fiction as well. Oh, wow. So the world's your oyster, isn't it, Nancy? (laughs) Oh, yes, for human rights documentarians. (laughs) And why not?
0: So thanks so much for sharing your story. I think it's just, it's riveting. And I feel really honored to have met you. Oh, thank you. Join us for another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein.